Turn to Mark chapter 15. That's right, I said 15. We got through Mark 14, the longest chapter in Mark's gospel, and now we are really on the stretch run. We just got a few more of these, and we'll be in verse 1 through 15 of, uh, of Mark 15 this morning. Several of you reached out to me last week to tell me that Sunday's sermon was particularly powerful, which I thank you for that. Meanwhile, my wife told me she thought it was sort of depressing, which I thank her for that. And I I read this once, and I believe this, that the best pastor's wife is one who remains supportive but unimpressed. And that's Mandy, I tell you. Supportive but unimpressed. No, I value her dearly. And in regards to last week's sermon, though, I actually agree with both sides of that, with those of you who are encouraged and those of you sobered. For those who fail, that's all of us, by the way, for those who fail, there's something powerful about the grace that's found in Peter's story. And for those of us who fail, again, all of us, there's something somber about pondering the ways that we so often betray Jesus. And as you recall, Peter's threefold denial of Christ, it's set in the courtyard of Caiaphas, the high priest. It happens as Jesus is being put on trial in front of the Sanhedrin. You remember I said, as Jesus is being put on trial, Peter is being put on trial. Jesus is convicted of blasphemy while Peter purposefully commits blasphemy. And if you look at all the gospel accounts, Jesus has a total of six formal appearances before these different legal authorities, none of which, his religious trial, his political trial, his imperial trial, none of which exercised any justice whatsoever. So as we think about and as we study this legal debacle that unfolds at the end of each gospel, just so this doesn't get too solemn, too depressing, I need to tell a lawyer joke, a lawyer joke. This lawyer joke was given to me by Roger Ediger, so know that I'm not offending anyone by telling it. And it goes like this. How many lawyers does it take to grease a combine? Just one, but you got to feed him through it real slow. Hey, farming and and lawyer rights, that's tough to bring together in one good joke, but that's a pretty good one. And in all seriousness... Gosh, in all seriousness, we have a legal debacle happening in our own nation, don't we? Make no mistake, the the decision made this week in our Supreme Court, it institutionalized sin. It endorsed sin at the most fundamental level of our society. And for that, believers in Christ, we should weep. We really should. We, We should say with David, who wrote in Psalm 119, my eyes shed streams of tears because people do not keep your law. My main reason <clears throat> excuse me, for mentioning this is not to mount a political counter-assault. I don't think that's the calling of the church. My reason for bringing it up is to ask you if you feel the sorrow of these days that we live in. You know, this 5-4 decision, it really is an assault on God. It's an assault on his design for those that he made in his image. And so really, our, our first response, it isn't outrage necessarily. It's not even action. It's just profound sorrow. And that's really a consistent response for a Christian because Christians are Christians because they wept over their sins. 
We weep over our own sins. We don't celebrate them. We don't institutionalize them. We sin, and in our sorrow, we turn to Jesus for his forgiveness and for his help. We cry to Jesus, who the Bible says delivers us from the wrath to come. And there is wrath to come. Romans chapter 1 tells us that God's wrath is poured out in giving people over to their own sinful desires. And I believe, I really do believe he's given our nation over here. And we will reap the effects. It will affect the church. It will affect Christian institutions. But at the same time, it will prune us. It will prune the church. It will, it will test us and purify us. The church will have a more profound and countercultural witness in this country. As Tim Keller says, the more hostile the culture, the easier it is to communicate the difference of Christianity. And that's what lies ahead for us. So we need not huff and puff and say, look what has come, or, or, or look what the world is coming to. No, we just we continue to repl- proclaim, look who's come into the world, Jesus Christ, to save us and rescue us from sin and death. All right. For thousands of years, Christians have confessed their faith by use of the Apostles' Creed. The creed is the original standard orthodox statement of faith. The core of what is to be believed about Christianity is expressed in the Apostles' Creed. And maybe you grew up in a tradition where weekly or regularly you were repeating, reciting in the course of a worship service the Apostles' Creed. It goes like this, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son, our Lord who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost. I believe in the Holy Catholic Church, not Roman Catholic Church. Just Catholic simply means universal. I believe in the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. So before the major church councils of Nicaea or Chalcedon, events that produce profound creedal statements of their own, we first have this Apostles' Creed. It's a creed that mentions all three persons of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In addition, it mentions two other people, two human beings. Who are they? First, the creed declares that Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary. It's not surprising that Mary is mentioned for the fact that she was Jesus' mother speaks to that supernatural conception. So his divinity intertwined with his humanity is expressed in this creed. The second person, and more surprising by far, the creed says that Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate. What is so important about that detail? Why his name? No mention of the high priest Caiaphas. Doesn't say he's denied by Judas Iscariot, not betrayed by Simon Peter. Why was the third-rate Roman politician enshrined in one of the most important doctrinal statements of the early church? Well, the simple reason is that Pilate was the presiding officer in the final condemnation and execution of Jesus Christ. He was the final arbiter in the entire case. So given that role, historians agree... He was not merely a historical figure, but he was the historical figure who issued the most significant judgment in human history. So the most significant judgment in history didn't happen this week. It happened right here in Mark 15. All right, let's read it together. Mark 15, beginning in verse 1. 
Inspired by the Holy Spirit, Mark writes these words. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, Have you no answer to make? See how many things they, see how many charges they bring against you? But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. Now at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. This is God's word. We're going to look at this in three frames this morning. The king's silence, the king's substitution, and the king's suffering. Let's start with the king's silence. Within that, we first see this accusation. The accusation comes as soon as it was morning. Remember the arrest and the initial trials against Jesus, they had happened in the middle of the night. The text tells us the Sanhedrin have now reconvened in the morning for a consultation. And they did this to cover their own legal basis. The law did not permit them to hold trials at night, which is exactly what they had done. So they convened in the morning to make their judgment on Jesus official. This consultation is considered the third religious trial of Jesus. The first one would have been when he showed up initially at the house of Annas, the former high priest. He was ushered quickly then to the house of Caiaphas, where the Sanhedrin gave their formal trial. And now this early morning consultation to somehow make their kangaroo court official. They've made up their minds. They have to get Jesus in front of the Roman authorities. And that's because the Sanhedrin, the Supreme Court of Israel, they do not have the right to sentence Jesus to die. It's not their jurisdiction. Only Rome could wield the sword. Only Rome could deliver capital punishment. So to see Jesus go to the cross, the Sanhedrin has to commiserate with a government whose authority they absolutely despise. And it needs to happen quickly because they have Passover proceedings to tend to. And the Sabbath is going to come at sundown. At sundown. So there's, there's lots to do in addition to killing the Son of God. So they make, they make haste to get this happened. But there's a hitch. Remember the Sanhedrin had only found Jesus guilty of blasphemy. The Romans, they don't care about blasphemy. It would be like an atheist being offended at hearing the Lord's name in vain. Rome just didn't care about blasphemy. So in order for Jesus to be put to death they would need a better charge than blasphemy. So as Jesus is now brought before Pontius Pilate, the charge being sort of cobbled together by the Sanhedrin is treason. They're going to make Jesus out to be a king. 
So let's talk about Pilate. Pilate is a procurator or a governor of Judea. He held this office from 26 AD to about 36 AD, the longest known tenure of any person to hold this office. His residence would have been at Caesarea by the Sea or Caesarea Maritima, which was a port city with a large amphitheater. It was a very Roman city, about 80 miles to the north and west of Jerusalem. And not much is known about Pilate, but by all accounts, he was an arrogant leader. In addition, he had a very tenuous relationship with the Jews. When he first, excuse me, when he first assumed power in 26 AD, he marched a Roman army into the Jewish temple in Jerusalem. The army carried banners with the emperor's picture embossed on them, and this, as you might have guessed, infuriates the Jews. So much so that they follow Pilate the 80 miles back to Caesarea and they protest outside the city for five days. They won't go in. It's a Gentile city. They don't want to go in and be unclean, so they're protesting outside of the city for five days. Eventually, Pilate, he rounds them up into the amphitheater and orders them to be executed. And so they bare their necks so the soldiers could slit their throats. But Pilate, at the last minute, he relents. The Jews had called his bluff, and he removes the banners. On another occasion, Pilate built an aqueduct to provide the city of Jerusalem fresh water. But he did it. You'd think they would have loved that, right? That's serving their cause. But he did it by pilfering the temple treasury. So the money they had given to God, he turned into a public works project. They did not like that. So again, this incited the Jews to riot. This time, however, Pilate had the rioters slaughtered by out-of-uniform Roman officers. The historian Philo charged Pilate with corruptibility, violence, robberies, ill-treatment of the people, grievances, continuous executions, without even the form of a trial, endless and intolerable cruelties. He got mired up with an incident in Samaria, and that was the thing that ultimately got him exiled out of uh, the land of Judea out of this position as governor. He ended up in Gaul, northern Gaul, which is France, and legend has it that he hung himself. Pilate was a bitter enemy of the Jews. He had no respect for the rights of their religion. But he was also expedient. Pilate wanted the peace kept. Rome was in the midst of the Pax Romana, the Roman peace, which meant that they were at war with no one. They simply wanted to rule and tax, rule and tax. And so Pilate was violent, but he was also compromising. What was best for him was to keep the peace, so he would find ways to ensure that the peace would be kept. Peace would give him favor with the emperor Tiberius. The emperor was a man that the Romans viewed as divine, so he wanted to be in his good graces. So there's only one accusation brought against Jesus that really concerns Pilate. And so he asks Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? Are you the king of the Jews? In the original language, the question actually reads, you are the king of the Jews? Question mark, question mark. It's the same form of question that Caiaphas had asked in the earlier trial when he said, you're the son of God? Both men here, Caiaphas and Pilate, sort of unknowingly confessing the truth about Jesus in the form of a question. Jesus' response is somewhat cryptic. He says, you have said so. 
which is neither a strong affirmation or a denial, really. And that's because Jesus' answer, it's careful. It's careful. It's more along the lines of, yes, I'm a king, but not the kind of king you're thinking of. If you read John's gospel, John's gospel records Jesus saying, yes, I'm a king, but my kingdom is not of this world. And here's where you have to visualize this scene within this question from Pilate. As Jesus stands there somewhat emotionless and certainly short and to the point, the chief priests, they're butting in. They're trying to accuse Jesus of of all these different things. And by doing this, they're just recapitulating all the bogus accusations that they had brought against Jesus before. And Luke 23, 2 provides the specifics regarding their accusations against Jesus. They said, we found this man subverting our nation, opposing payments of taxes to Caesar, and saying that he himself is the Messiah, the king, which is all false. Those are all lies. He, he did not pervert the nation. They did. The Sanhedrin did. He did not forbid to pay taxes. They were the ones that resented taxation so much. He told the people to pay their taxes, and he paid his own. And while he claimed to be king, his kingdom, as I said, was never of this world. The Sanhedrin lied. They are bearing false witness, violating one of the Ten Commandments in the face of the one who had given those commandments. Think about that. But as I said, Pilate hones in on just one of the accusations, the last one according to Luke. You are the king of the Jews? He ignored the first accusation that Jesus had perverted the nation. He ignored the second accusation that Jesus was telling the people not to pay their taxes. And he went right to the third one because it fascinated him. Are you the king of the Jews? Really? And of course, there's irony in that because there's nothing about Jesus at this point that makes him look royal or regal or authoritative or powerful. Nothing at all. Remember his condition in this moment. He's wearing a garment that's been stained by sweat and blood. His face is battered and bruised from from punches and from slaps. He's, He's got spit all over him. He's been thrown in the dirt. He has not bathed. Are you the king of the Jews? There's irony and sarcasm in that question. But the brevity of Jesus' answers, they they puzzle Pilate. Jesus provides no passionate rebuttal to these charges, none at all. Just like he had done before in the house of Caiaphas, by remaining silent, he refuses to give one ounce of credit to what's being said of him. He won't validate these accusations and these charges by saying anything in his defense. Not a word is given. And as I've said, there is scripture being fulfilled here. Isaiah 53, he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. And it's his silence in the face of this accusation which leads to Pilate's amazement. That's what the text tells us, that Pilate is amazed. He's in awe of Jesus here. Now, amazement doesn't equal faith, but he's in awe of Jesus. Pilate turns to Jesus, are are you answering nothing? Look how many things they're accusing you of. To his amazement, Jesus still did not answer. The other Gospels tell us Pilate would try to wash his hands of Jesus and send him to another trial, send him to Herod Antipas. And what happened there? Jesus said nothing in front of Herod Antipas. 
So as the great king, Jesus, as he is silent in the face of accusers, sinful men can only watch in amazement. Who is this man? He gives no defense, not a word. Jesus is seeing to it that he goes to the cross. Remember, he, he, he's already resolved to drink the cup. That happened in the garden. He's just submitting now to the Father's will and how this is going to play out. And just as an add-on to this first point, the amazing silence of Jesus is on display in Mark's gospel because of who would have originally read it. The account would have been originally read by Romans, Roman Christians, people under persecution for their newfound faith, Romans who would find themselves standing in front of officials, governors, these types being questioned in front of crowds and in front of tribunals, Romans ordered to renounce what they believe, which means the posture of Jesus here is a comforting lesson for them, a comforting lesson for those who would have first read this gospel. Mark is saying, hey, just like Jesus, silently receive your accusations. Don't protest. Don't protest. In your dignity, trust God's sovereignty. In your dignity, trust God's sovereignty. That may be a good lesson for those of you on, on, on Facebook this week. <laughs> In your dignity, trust God's sovereignty. Let's look at the next five or six verses. You see the king's substitution. I love Mark for setting this up for us. He explains the custom of the Roman governor, that, that during the Passover, Pilate would release a prisoner to the people. And then he tells us who's available for release. So obviously, Jesus, as you know, is available the Sanhedrin, they have accused him of blasphemy because why? He calls himself God's son. That was the death knell for Jesus. That's why he's standing where he's standing. But secondly, there's an insurrectionist, a man who has stirred up trouble against Rome, a freedom fighter, you might call him. He had committed murder, and his name is Barabbas. The prefix bar means son of, Abba means father, the name Barabbas means son of the father. You catch the irony in that? We've got the true son of the father, sinless and innocent, he's going to be beaten and crucified. The other son of the father, Barabbas, sinful and guilty, will be set free because Jesus stood in his place. Jesus was his substitute. So we have two passages in a row now underscoring substitution. Last week, Peter had called down a curse upon himself as he blasphemed God, but there Jesus stood, accused of blasphemy, taking Peter's place, himself cursed and afflicted, so Peter would not have to be. And what you have to see here is is this plan, this amnesty plan has just backfired on Pilate. In verse 8, we see the people, they begin to petition him for this amnesty gift. And Pilate likely saw this as a way to get out of this tough situation. He had already told told the Sanhedrin, I've got no grounds for charging him. Furthermore, he knew the chief priests, he knew that they were motivated by envy. So Pilate asked pointedly, do you want me to release the king of the Jews for you? If the people went with his suggestion... He could release a man he knew to be innocent, Jesus, and he could stick it to the Sanhedrin at the same time. Pilate would have have loved that. But things did not go Pilate's way. The religious leaders got out in front of Pilate, and they stirred up the crowd, the text says. 
And so Pilate would release Barabbas. R.C. Sproul says, The choice was between a man fighting to give them political freedom and a man sent from God who could give them spiritual freedom. And so the one thing Pilate hated and didn't want to happen, an insurrection, a riot, a freedom fighter to be on the loose, he exchanged the places of Jesus and Barabbas. And so Jesus was innocent but declared to be guilty. Barabbas was guilty but treated as though he were innocent. Jesus died in his place. He also died in our place. He died in your place. We're all Barabbas in this text. We are sons and daughters of the Father. Bar Abba, Barabbas, set free because of the sacrifice of Jesus. You see that? You remember that story from the bridge over the river Kwai? It's the story of ten prisoners of war taken out day by day to do their work and their toil. And as, as they're leaving in the evening one day, the guard counts up the shovels. And there's one missing. And so the guard, shouting hysterically, threatens death unless the soldier, the imprisoned soldier, responsible for the lost, lost shovel, steps forward. If no one steps forward, the guard shouts, they're all going to die. All die, was the order. Unless the one who has lost or stolen the shovel steps forward, all the soldiers will die. And as the scene plays out, eventually one of the soldiers steps forward, and the guards come, and with the end of their rifles, they club him to death. And then they recount the shovels, remember? And there wasn't actually one missing. The soldier who stepped forward died to spare the others. He died in their place. He died as their substitute. And as a Christian, that is my most basic confession this morning. That Jesus died in my place. That he died for me. That he bore the suffering that my sins deserve, that my guilt deserves. That God made him who knew no sin to be sin for me, that I might know the righteousness of God in him. Have you come to a place where you understand the gospel that way? That it's an exchange, a wonderful exchange. An exchange of your sin imputed to Jesus Christ and his righteousness imputed to you. An exchange that happened because he bore God's wrath due you on the cross so that you could no longer be separated from God but united to God through his wonderful obedience and sacrifice. If you've never understood the gospel that way, you've never really rightly understood the gospel. And if you don't put your faith in Jesus Christ, repent from your sin and trust in him, you've never done that. You're not in relationship with God. I invite you to do that today. Sinclair Ferguson writes, Without knowing it, the religious leaders in Pilate and Barabbas were all part of a tapestry of grace which God was weaving for sinners. Their actions speak louder than their words. Louder than the cries of the crowds for Jesus' blood. Jesus was not dying for his own crimes, but for the crimes of others. Not for his own sins, but for the sins of others. He died not for himself. He died for us. Which brings us officially to the king's suffering. 
Pilate, upon the surprising release of Barabbas, asks, then what shall I do with the man you call king of the Jews? Notice, Pilate isn't agreeing with the title. He's saying, you call him this. I see not a king before me. And the crowd shouts, crucify him. And then Pilate's response, why? What evil has he done? This man is innocent. You Jews are crazy. And so Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, Pilate is again back in another situation where he has stirred up a Jewish crowd and that crowd is now forcing his hand and he gives them what they want. He sentences Jesus first to be scourged, then to be crucified. In his definitive commentary on Mark, William Lane details what being scourged meant. He writes, A Roman scourging was a terrifying punishment. The delinquent was stripped, bound to a post or a pillar, or sometimes simply thrown to the ground, and was beaten by a number of guards until his flesh hung in bleeding shreds. The instrument indicated, excuse me, by the Mark and text, the dreaded flagellum, was a scourge consisting of leather thongs plated with several pieces of bone or lead so as to form a chain. No maximum number of strokes was prescribed by Roman law, and men condemned to scourging frequently collapsed and died from the flogging. Josephus records that he himself had some of his opponents in Galilee scourged until their entrails were visible, while the procurator Albinus had another prophet scourged until his bones lay bare. Such is the fate of Jesus. And so in Mark's account, the trials are now over. The sentence is given. Only the cross lies before Jesus. Some of the old hymns are tremendous. Here's one that goes along with this text. Listen carefully. Jesus is standing in Pilate's hall, friendless, forsaken, betrayed by all. Hearken, what meaneth the sudden call? What will you do with Jesus? Jesus is standing on trial still. You can be false to him if you will. You can be faithful through good or ill. What will you do with Jesus? Will you evade him as Pilate tried, or will you choose him, whate'er betide? Vainly you struggle from him to hide. What will you do with Jesus? Will you, like Peter, your Lord, deny, or will you scorn from his foes to fly, daring for Jesus to live or die? What will you do with Jesus? And here's the chorus. What will you do with Jesus? Neutral you cannot be. Someday your heart will be asking, what will he do with me? He is the king. He doesn't look like it. He is the king. And he holds your life in his hands. What will he do with you? Let's pray together. Father, we love you. We thank you for your word. And Lord, here we have an account that is too weighty and too solemn for us to grasp. And so as I come to you and I ask you to hit us with the weight of it, I recognize that we, we really can't even take the weight of it. 
So by your Holy Spirit, would you just illuminate our hearts and minds to whatever capacity we can understand that what is going on here was for us. That Jesus stood silently condemned in front of a bunch of fools so that we could have life and joy and eternity with you. Lord, what's here is startling. So startle our hearts today. Move us towards you as we see the great love you have for us on display through the obedience of Christ, going to the cross, bearing the shame, standing in our place. Thank you for this church and for our time together today. It's in Christ's name we pray these things. Amen. Thank you, Jay, and uh, thank you all for worshiping with us today. Just uh, a few reminders before I send you out today. Um, this evening, as I mentioned earlier, I have a special time of celebration for Jared and Carrie and their ministry uh, here at EMB. Uh, that's at 6 o'clock tonight, uh, Mexican Fiesta, so wear your sombreros this evening. That would be fun. Um, also, just a reminder this week, pray for our junior high campers um, leaving later in the week um, that God would do a great work uh, in their lives uh, through camp. Uh, next Sunday, if you're around for the holiday weekend, we welcome you back for a time of worship. We can have one combined service at 1030. We'll be sharing the Lord's Supper and have some other special things planned for that. Uh, no Sunday school next week. Let's stand together, and I want to leave you with a few words from the book of Ephesians. I read uh, kind of the first part of this passage earlier uh, in the middle of the time we were worshiping through music together, and I want to finish it out uh, because I think it's kind of a charge and a reminder of who we are. This is Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. It says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God. Not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Go in peace today.